0: Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.
0: This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.
2: The Dream Team Tapes Season 2. Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio.
3: Players selected for the honor of representing the United States in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games are Kobe Bryant.
4: We look forward to this for a while, you know, to be in this position now to be able to you know, represent our country, man. It's special, it's special.
3: LeBron James.
5: We look for the opportunity to rekindle that flame of being the best in the world. I guess the redeemed team is, is, is right.
3: We're the
4: best team in the world. We're the best team in the world. We, we put basketball, American basketball, where it's supposed to be, which is at the top.
6: Welcome to the Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team podcast. I'm J.A. Adonde, and we're calling this episode Lucky Sevens. Since most of the action we'll be describing takes play in Las Vegas, luck be a lady tonight, et cetera, and all that, and all of the action takes place in 2007. The NBA All-Star Game was in Vegas that year, and so was Team USA's training camp and the FIBA Americas Tournament. It was originally supposed to be in Venezuela. We'll, we'll get to the story behind that later. There were important breakthrough moments for Kobe Bryant and LeBron James individually in 2007, and then they came together that summer to play as teammates for the first time. But the story starts at All-Star Weekend in February. And in season one of the Dream Team tapes, Jack McCallum told us about the lengths he would go to to avoid writing about All-Star games. And Jack, you were willing to jump through the logistical hoops of gathering Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, and Karl Malone for a photo shoot for the Sports Illustrated famous cover photo shoot, You'd rather do all that than recap the 91 All-Star game in Charlotte that year. Did you really despise covering All-Star games that much?
2: First of all, don't be giving away all my professional secrets, uh, (laughs) J.A. That wasn't very nice. The thing I remember most about All-Star weekends, to give you an idea what the game meant to me, was that one of my favorites was 1986, the first year they did the uh, three-point shot contest. I mean, by then we had seen a lot of unbelievable dunks. I mean, you went back to the ABA dunks. You know, they were as spectacular as anything. But I remember that first shooting contest when Bird, you know, comes out and doesn't remove his uh, warm-up jacket. The problem with it was, was that when you write for Sports Illustrated, you're always supposed to be looking at some angle, some sort of thing that would propel you forward. And with the All-Star game, you couldn't really get that. And I'm talking about an era when some of the All-Star games were pretty good. So it was just very hard to find an angle. The moment the, the, uh, the weekend was over, the game was over, you went back to the regular season, and it just seemed this kind of anomaly that was very difficult to write about. But I was there for everyone uh, from tip-off until the final and was even reasonably non-hungover when the tip-off went off. Congratulations.
6: Well, the the parties were always the best part of All-Star Weekend. But I always felt the All-Star Weekends and even the All-Star Games could be viewed as a referendum on the state of the NBA, if, if you really took a step back and looked at it that way. And in 2007, Kobe clearly approached it as a way to climb back to the top of the league and to regain his good standing in the public eye. So remember, after the 2003 sexual assault allegation, he'd lost endorsement deals with sponsors like McDonald's and Nutella. Now, Nike stuck with him the whole time, but they weren't exactly emphasizing him. Uh, They they kept him on the roster, but he wasn't at the forefront. But at the 2007 All-Star Weekend, Kobe's doing promotional events for the Sony PlayStation and the NBA 07 video game. And that was his first new sponsor since the case against him was dropped in 2004. And the NBA was embracing him as well, formally. He was one of the past dunk contest winners that they brought back to serve as a judge for the dunk contest. So he was sitting there along with Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins. Michael was hating, by the way. He refused to give up tens to anybody. The lowest score for every dunk was Michael Jordan. <laughs> he was in full hater mode. And then comes the game on Sunday night, and everybody else played like exactly what you'd expect people who spent their previous 48 hours in Las Vegas to play like, but not Kobe. Kobe. He's picking guys up at half court. He's saving balls from going out of bounds. He had 31 points and get this Jack, six steals in this game. And Kobe's actually the all-time steals leader in the All-Star game. That tells you how seriously he takes it. And to hear Carmelo Anthony tell it, that performance in 2007 was all predestined.
4: Even being there, you felt it. Like, he would tell you, like, yo, I'm going for it tonight. You know what I'm saying? Like, he he, he was telling people, I'm going for it tonight. I'm locked in. And for the people that know him and been around in those environments, when he get that that aura, that you know, it's, it's almost like Bruce Leroy where he get the glow. Like when, when he get that and you start looking in his eyes and he start getting this look, you know what type of night it's going to be. <laughs> and he had that. He had it. He would just say, I'm going for
6: it. I'm going for it. I like that Bruce Leroy reference from Carmelo, a hint to the uh, 80s movies, The Last Dragon. And since Carmelo was Kobe's teammate on the Western Conference squad back when they still divided all-star teams by conference, he had a warning beforehand. But Chris Bosch was unprepared. He was playing for the East. He had no idea what was coming, but it didn't take him long to see what was happening. At first, it's like, man, what the hell is this dude
4: doing? Oh, yeah, all-star MVP. Yeah, he's going for it, boys. And he's <laughs> going to get it because it was a blowout. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, he was there. He was playing hard. I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that man. He was playing so hard. And you know, for a guy like me, I'm a young dude. My family is there. I just want to get a couple dunks, be in the game. It's not for bigs. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I'm, you know, he's just, you know, the the guard lays down on a screen and roll or ISO, and we're the one. You know, I'm a big, and Kobe's coming at me full speed. I'm like, man. This is crazy. He's really moving fast. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, getting was- offensive rebounds and all that stuff. It was great. It was pretty fun. That that taught me how important it was, you know, and just like, yeah, everybody is just, you know, just kind of out here for shits and giggles and they'll play the game. Nah, they're, they're – they put your name in the paper for these things, you know, and especially if, you, uh, if you're trying, uh, you know, to make a comeback and mm-hmm. – Man, hell yeah. I I, I I, couldn't even fathom that stuff. Couldn't even fathom uh, the pressure he was putting on himself to even do that.
6: So Kobe wins the All-Star Game MVP, and this time he's cheered when he holds up the trophy, unlike in 2002 when he won the All-Star MVP in his hometown of Philadelphia and the fans booed him. That's your town, Jack. Explain what your people were doing.
2: Well, that's kind of my town. I've always lived I, – I was born just – south of Philadelphia. Now I live just north of Philadelphia, but I did work there for a while. So, okay, I'll claim to be a Philly guy. You know, their relationship, Jay, was interesting. And and Kobe was, I remember that Kobe was very surprised uh, and even, you know, a little bit hurt. And I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, it's Philly. <laughs> so kind of, <laughs> they booed
6: Beyonce at the NBA Finals the, the year before in Destiny's Child. I, I know they they talk about Philly booing Santa Claus. How do you boo Beyonce? Uh,
2: I mean, I will defend Philly fans a little bit more than most people, but it is Philly, so it's kind of what we do. Number two, Kobe wasn't a true, true Philly guy. You know, he wasn't from Roman Catholic. He wasn't from Overbrook. He was out there in the burbs. You know, at uh, at Lower Marion. Number three. Before I give the final reason, let me ask you something you would know better than I would. Was Kobe a teetotaler? Like, did he not party at all during these weekends in Vegas and stuff? I don't really know. I never had cocktails with him or anything, so I don't know the answer to that. Was he? You
6: didn't see him out. Yeah. And I actually had drinks with him much, much later, including, I think, one of those USA, Team USA times in in Vegas when they had training camps in Vegas, but... At that stage, no, I'd never had a drink or seen Kobe out drinking.
2: You know, that has something to do with his all-star appearances. But I think the the final reason, Jay, was that this time, we're talking about 2002, that was in the middle of the A.I. Philly honeymoon. I mean, he had taken them, A.I. had taken them to the finals the year before, won that memorable Game 1 in L.A. We all knew okay, it's probably going to win four in a row after that. But A.I. kicked their ass in game one. And A.I. was the MVP of the All-Star Game in 01. Had a great game down in Washington. I think people were looking at, hey, let's get two in a row. He's our guy. He's on the other team with Kobe. So in, in retrospect, I guess it's pretty natural that he got booed. However, Kobe was disappointed, you know, and he was a little bit hurt if you look at the YouTube films of that. And, uh, he went out and showed, I'll show you how I play when I'm hurt, and went out there and, as he usually did, you know, took no prisoners.
6: Kobe did still have love from the fans on the West Coast, and Vegas is kind of like Lakers' secondary market. Remember, they used to play regular season games up there, and they, they still play preseason games there, and Vegas fans love Kobe. But talking to the players after that All-Star game in 07, I just remember they didn't seem particularly close to him. I talked to Iverson, Ray Allen. They, they just didn't know him that well still. And they were, okay, good for him. He won the MVP. He wanted it that bad. If he wants it, he can have it. The attitude was more like they, they had to respect him. It was a grudging respect. It wasn't love, but there was grudging respect for Kobe.
2: Yeah, I think that feeds into that. We've alluded to it before, Jay, that kind of he just wasn't one of the guys. And I'm talking about, you know, covering all-star games back in the 80s when players really, really wanted that to be MVP of the all-star game. That was really, really important. And okay, did they play defense like the regular season? No. All-star games have always been high-scoring affairs. You know, they weren't double-teaming the post and doing all the Pat Riley, you know, UB Brown, you know, defenses. But they still played their butts off. But it just had to do with that lone wolf aspect of uh, of Kobe. And later in that season, in the playoffs, one of the guys that really earned the respect that year was LeBron. It was the year of his memorable 48 special, which followed hard upon the Danielle Marshall game when he apparently committed the egregious, unforgivable sin of instead of driving to the basket for the final play, passed off to a wide-open uh, Danielle Marshall in the corner, who was known as a three-point specialist, Danielle Marshall lived, missed a shot. Everybody went, my God, LeBron's not a gamer. Well, he went on uh, to be quite a gamer in that series against the Pistons. And if you look at that series, it's one of the most incredible scoring explosions of all time. They're playing the Pistons with 249 left at regulation. Drew Gooden makes a free throw that cuts the Pistons lead to four points. They eventually play three more minutes of that, 12 minutes of overtime. Nobody scores another point for Cleveland except for LeBron James. They let him shoot from the outside. He starts making threes. They said, oh, hell, we got to go out and cover him. He gets to the basket and makes a dunk. And when it was all over and they had beaten the Pistons, they then beat him uh, in the climactic game. The league had a little bit of a change. And I remember that summer, you know, people would say for the first time, hey, Jack, if you could pick Kobe or LeBron, who would you take? And I just still remember going, well, if you're asking me this year, I guess I would still take Kobe. But if you ask me next year, I think it's going to be LeBron.
6: Yeah, it's starting to happen, and and it's starting to become a legitimate conversation, and – This was just a fantastic performance. Marv Albert called that game for Turner. He called it one of the best playoff performances he'd ever seen. And when Marv Albert says that, (laughs) coming from all the playoff performances he's witnessed, that is incredible praise. And it's indicative of the type of attention and the type of love that LeBron is starting to get at that moment. And I really think Kobe was envious of LeBron getting all this attention. And, it's no coincidence, in my mind, that in the middle of these playoffs, in the middle of that series, Kobe goes on Stephen A. Smith's radio show and says he wants to be traded. <laughs> the Lakers, remember, coming off. Kobe's out of the playoffs. He'd been eliminated in the first round for the second year in a row by the Phoenix Suns, and they are regressing. It took seven games the year before. This year in 2007, he's out in five games, and he's grumbling that night. He pulled me aside and is talking about, you know, this shit has to change. He's unhappy with the supporting cast that he has there. They need to do something about it. And it's just lingering and festering in him. And then here's LeBron getting all this attention, and it just spills out on all these radio interviews that he's doing that summer and, and that spring. So Kobe wants to be traded, and that all leads to a big meeting that offseason that Phil Jackson
3: described to us. He was like, uh, I don't know if we can go forward without making some you know, dramatic changes. And he said, uh, I'm going to have to do it. So he picked up the ball, and he met with Dr. Buss in Barcelona, and then he came back to California. So I was kind of there as the mediator. There was uh, Dr. Buss, and there was uh, Jimmy Buss, and uh, Mitch Kupchak, and on the other side was uh, Rob Palenka and Kobe. And I could sit in between and and, uh, kind of – moderate whatever I could talk about as, you know, the effectiveness. And eventually, we came out down to reasoning and going forward, even though it was very difficult. I think we, we uh, actually got down to even having some names that were on the board. And Dr. Buzz said uh, something to the effect, if I had a five-carat ring and or diamond, he said, didn't say ring, a diamond, And someone suggested that I break it up and make one-carat diamonds out of the five-carat diamonds. That wouldn't be smart, would it? Something to that effect. He said the five-carat diamond is much more valuable than five one-carat diamonds. And that's how I feel
6: about you, Kobe. And with that jewelry analogy, Kobe was destined to remain a Laker. It took a little while, but eventually, not only did he stay, he winds up winning the MVP the next season. But it's pretty amazing to think that all this dissension and turmoil with the Lakers is playing out that same summer that the USA basketball team is training and playing to qualify for the Olympics.
2: Yeah, Kobe always seemed to be one of those guys that that, uh, ascribed to the theory that creative tension was best, you know, (laughs) that you couldn't... If things were too calm, uh, you know, it just didn't work. But one thing he didn't have to worry about was the the roster with uh, USA Basketball that they had compiled. I mean, beside the, you know, Carmelo, uh, Kobe himself being on it, LeBron, Jay Kidd, uh, uh, you know, they had some other... Darren Williams, they had some other guys that summer. One of the main ones being Chauncey Billups. And I, I was always a fan of Chauncey's game. I just thought Chauncey you know, really walked that line. He was kind of a combo guard. At the same time, he was kind of a combo style guy. He was sort of a, you know, an urban player. You could see him in Rucker Park, but you could also see him, you know, dribbling the ball and taking the time and doing kind of a magic Johnson, let's calm down and everything. And he was on that team. And he's one of the guys whose uh, games I really respected. And And here's what Darren Williams who was at the time kind of a younger player here's what he thought the first time he saw that team assembled
7: when we got together and I like looked at I was looking at like the lineup and I was just like man this is uh, it's a pretty good team <laughs> like I, I don't see anybody beating us honestly I, that's that was my
6: my first thing just I didn't see anybody beating us how do you then fight off the overconfidence right that that could be a dangerous attitude to, to come in to the olympics with so. 100% I don't think while I while I felt like I didn't see anybody beating us, that
7: didn't. It wasn't it wasn't cockiness. It wasn't. It was kind of cockiness, I think. But <laughs> but it was you know it was just at the same time we just we had a goal. Uh, when you put that much talent in the room with that you know with some of the hardest workers in the game, uh, with some of the best leaders in the game, with one of the best coaches that's ever coached the game, and the coaching staff was an unbelievable coaching staff behind. Coach K, because it wasn't just Coach K. I mean, we had we had a, a great coaching staff. And so all those things together, great leadership from the top, from Jerry Colangelo, you
6: know, I just didn't see us losing. Now keep in mind, they had lost to Greece in the World Championships the year before. And LeBron, Carmelo, and Dwight Howard were the key players from that 06 team who were back in 07. Chris Bosch and Dwayne Wade were on the 06 team. And they're in Vegas in the summer of 07, but they're injured, so they're not on the active roster but Bosch was there, and he told us the most noticeable difference was having Kobe on the court.
4: Yeah. I mean, um, Kobe <laughs> is playing. Kobe is here. You know, it's <laughs> – and, you know, you have to – even though you play against him, he he has an aura. So when, you know, he walked in the room, you're – you know, everything stops. I didn't play in 07. I was there, but I didn't play. I had plantar fasciitis, which made me a little nervous uh, as far as making the team. But I didn't get those – those experiences in the game with Kobe at that point but just being a spectator and watching him and Jason Kidd I'd be on the bench and in practice you know Jason Kidd throws a pass to Kobe and he goes right by his face because he didn't know he was open so they had that chemistry that they were working out getting used to each other and I mean Kobe he was um he was always a serious person You know, he was always very, very uh, meticulous about basketball. So anytime he's playing basketball, serious, like every single time. So that definitely um, changed the narrative a bit. And we we were unsuccessful in the last one. So it's not panic or anything like that, but it's definitely like, yo, we got to get better. You know, we have to do better.
2: You're listening to Kobe,
1: LeBron, and the Redeem team. We'll be back in a minute.
8: Angie can even help with extremely specific projects. Just tell them what you need and Angie will find the right solution for you. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. (sighs)
0: Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact
2: I always wondered what it was like for those... You know, a guy like Jim Beheim by that time had been around the game for uh, 50 years, and he was one of the assistants. And I always wondered what it was like for those guys that have complete command over their team. You know, that their their rule is uh, is absolute. And then they come in and, and meet up with a guy like Kobe and LeBron, who are basically the bosses, you know, of their own team. And I think Beheim probably one of these guys that didn't love Kobe to begin with, but boy, he certainly developed a, uh, a grudging respect and admiration for the guy. And here's what he had to say about Kobe coming in.
3: Kobe really changed the whole focus of the team. He came in. I remember he came in. He worked out in the morning. He came to the meeting, worked out at night, came to practice and just attacked everybody. Just <laughs> literally, literally attacked whoever he was guarding you know, and I'd never been around Kobe other than to say hello to him, but he attacked everybody in that first couple of
6: days of practice. And then it was a matter of, would it be a fair fight? So if he's attacking everybody, are the people on the other side of the scrimmage going to have the, the weapons and the wherewithal to be able to go back at him? And of course, the the best way to assure that was to put LeBron on the other team. And if you wanted that creative tension that you talked about, Jack. Or I'd say it goes beyond just creative tension. But if, if you if you wanted that competitive desire to come out into practice, you definitely separate Kobe and LeBron and have them go at it and their quest for supremacy of the team and the league. And to me, it seems similar. And you can tell me because you were there with this dream team, but it seems like a similar dynamic to Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson duking out for supremacy on the dream team. But the the difference that I see is that Magic, you know, Magic hadn't even played the year before. He he had announced his retirement with HIV, whereas Kobe is in his prime. He's twenty seven in the summer of two thousand seven. He turns twenty eight in August, and he just led the NBA in scoring for the past two seasons. Uh, as opposed to Magic coming off uh, an All Star appearance, that memorable All Star game in Orlando, but that was it for him in the ninety one ninety two season.
2: Yeah, I would pay. And sports writers don't pay for very much. I would have paid a lot of money to watch a Kobe-LeBron one-on-one game right about then. I I don't. I I couldn't even begin to tell you who would have won, but I can tell you a Michael Magic game. Who would have won? <laughs> you know, <laughs> fifty to nothing maybe. So, but the but the in its own way though, Jay, the Magic Michael thing. The, re- the relationship was almost as interesting in a ceremonial kind of way. And there, what they were dueling about was whose league is it, you know? And the one thing Magic, he was the most, hey, one of the most unselfish guys who ever played the game. But Magic had this idea of the proprietary thing that this was still my league. And it was still Larry's league. Bird gave up that long ago. <laughs> and it could have been during the playoffs, you know, uh, six years before the Dream Team when Michael went for, uh, what was it, 63 and 48 in Boston Garden. But Magic held on to that, and it was very much of a uh, a ceremonial argument until he finally said, uh, no, okay, I got to admit, uh, I hear you. This is now Michael's, uh, Michael's league. And it wasn't the same thing for... Kobe and LeBron. I mean, I if you would have asked whose league it was then, I, you could have probably got a pretty even vote on that. I would imagine. Yeah, and,
6: and like that dream team was the passing of the torch, and you described it that way in in, in your chronicling of that team. So the torch is officially passed, probably after that that infamous scrimmage. And there's no torch passing here. They're they're fighting for the torch when Kobe and LeBron are going at it. And Jason Kidd said, uh, "You know, when when they're on separate teams in the scrimmage, you knew it was going to be a battle. It, it was that competitive nature. I think Kobe would have won a one-on-one game between the two of them because he was the better one-on-one player. LeBron was a more pass-oriented player.
2: Kobe never spent much time looking for the open guy. <laughs> no, that wasn't that. Was, unless it was Shaq. You know, Shaq at the Shaq at the rim. He found him.
6: He was a good passer and could pass, but yeah, that that wasn't his thing." That wasn't his mindset necessarily. But also LeBron wasn't as good an outside shooter. That was something that he developed. And even that year in the finals, one of the reasons they got swept by the Spurs was the Spurs' defensive strategy was to basically give LeBron that 18 to 20-foot shot. And he couldn't make them pay often enough to do that. And it used to be the difference around that time, I think, was that Kobe could lay off LeBron a little bit if he's guarding him. LeBron couldn't lay off Kobe. Now, fast forward a few years, you can't afford to lay off LeBron anymore. He, he Complete game. Now he can pull up from the logo at near half court and make threes. But he couldn't back then. So that was one of the reasons I think Kobe still had the edge back then. But, you know, as much as they were maybe competing with each other, Coach K knew that
9: it was essential for LeBron and Kobe to coexist for this team to work. And their own individual teams, they're exalted to be the one or two superstars on the team. But we could not have that. And that's where the relationship between Kobe and LeBron really became the centerpiece of, uh, of that foundation, of, of that building. And those two guys were magnificent in how they brought it together. And so at that point, Coach K had a little more history with LeBron
6: than he did with Kobe since They'd gone through that humbling loss to Greece together in 2006. And Shashevsky actually went to Akron, Ohio, to meet with LeBron and to get his feedback on some of the new players who were joining the team in 2007.
9: You know, like all of us, me too, we had a lot of growing up to do for international or otherwise. And so we learned from some of the mistakes that were made. And I said, I want to bring these three guys in. And he I said, how do you feel about it? Because, I don't know, some of those guys might feel no one's as good as them, you know? And uh, so he, this is a true story. That's all true. He, he said, well, Jay Kidd is the best passer in the NBA. I can really pass too. Uh, I can learn from him. And at that time, Kobe was the best player in, in the NBA. And he didn't say that, but, but he did say, Nobody prepares like Kobe. I, I can learn from that. And Chauncey is really smart. And on every meeting that we had with that team, LeBron sat next to Jay Kidd. And almost every night, people don't realize how much extra these guys do. Uh, Jason and LeBron went to shoot together, and they weren't. I call it when I speak to you know sharing best practices. And how would they have ever shared best practices if they had not come together and be willing, since they own the same thing, be willing to share that that stuff? And at the end of the day, it was beautiful, really. And I, I give so much credit to those guys.
2: You're listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. We'll be
1: back in a minute.
8: angie can even help with extremely specific projects just tell them what you need and angie will find the right solution for you get started at angie.com that's a-n-g-i.com or download the app today
10: tired of restless nights meet lisa the sleep experts
2: sort of the, the two sides of, uh, you know, the veteran leader and the kind of coming leader. They got very close and so close that Jason even became intimately familiar with LeBron's preferred alcoholic beverage, which I would not have guessed. But here it is.
5: Well, um, understanding I had to get used to drinking strawberry daiquiris with LeBron, I was number one. Um, I think we set a record in Vegas of drinking strawberry daiquiris.
2: But it wasn't all about drinks by the pool at the uh, the Win Hotel. Kid delivered an important message at the
5: outset of that summer season. I was soft spoken, um, but I thought, you know, starting the meeting off by saying, "Can we be on time?" You know, because we don't want to sit here and wait for someone, and because that will start to chip away at the foundation of the team. We'll start to click, we'll start to say negative things about one another, and and all of a sudden it falls apart. So um, I always thought if a team, an all-star team, could come together and be on time, I thought, one, that's respectful to the coaches and also to each other, and and sometimes that's overlooked. And uh, that's kind of how I wanted to start the meeting. Again, I didn't yell it out. Um, I knew my place, but I thought if we could start on time, that would help Coach K., and that also would help with the team. So it feels like Kid was the camp
6: counselor that summer, but it was really important that rather than Kobe or LeBron fighting over the leadership role, Kid could sort of step in as the third party and take on that
5: position. Well, I think uh, one, trust. Um, I think they, they all felt um, that I played at a high level, that I was about winning um, and playing the game the right way. And uh, I think they trusted, you know, that what I said or, was going to do was going to was going to help them wasn't going to mislead them and uh, that's a big thing when you talk about that that group of brothers uh, brotherhood of uh, being honest and uh, trying to help from past experiences so I think it was just a trust and they knew that I was not trying to infringe on on their their territory or take their territory I was there just to. I was Switzerland I was just there to help.
2: Kobe was not Switzerland. Kobe was more of the uh, Kobe was the the British Empire or the Soviets in the fifties. He was a little bit more uh, acquisitive, but uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, historical reference, by the way, by Jay Kidd. And uh, Coach K could tell the players were still eyeing Kobe, still looking at him kind of warily, wanted to
9: know what he was willing
2: to give up for the sake of the team. And he got a preview of that even before they started practicing.
9: Two days before we started the meeting you know, for that team, we were in Vegas as a staff and we uh, were planning and all of a sudden a knock on the door and it's Kobe. He's there two days early. And again, I'm not embellishing this at all. He said, coach, uh, I'd like to talk to you for a little bit. So I, we went to another place and he said, I, I need for you to do me a favor. And I said, of course, what's the favor? He said, I want to guard the best perimeter player of every team that we play. And then he paused, and you know his eyes, right? He and Jordan, no one really has had those eyes, those two guys. Maybe Bird a little bit, yeah. You know, but those two guys. And he leans forward, and he says, and I promise you, I'll destroy him." When I speak, I, I embellish. I said I pulled out a contract right there, and but uh, so fast forward the meeting. He talks about uh, rebounding and defense, right? The first practice, the first practice, he does not take a shot. He did not take one shot. Afterwards, I brought him. I said, "Hey, you know this destroy thing. He, I've seen you get." multiple 50 point games this year. He said, you know what I was doing? I said, yeah, but please shoot. So (laughs) we would, we would kid one another that I was the only coach ever that had to plead for him to shoot. And, but that set the stage. Another interesting thing from the first practice, we're doing a fast break drill and we're throwing the damn thing all over the place. Jason is got more turnovers in that game than he has in half the season in the NBA. And we come together and, I, I, and, and uh, Jason says to the team, I'll, I'll tone it down. And Carmelo and LeBron and Kobe, they say to him, don't tone it down. We've never played with you. You know, we'll get your passes. You see things, we've adjusted our game to people who don't see what you do. Don't stop seeing what, it, it was an unbelievable right? How cool is that? That's like a musician, you know, you get a but and somebody's going, yeah, it doesn't work. No, no, keep playing the fucking piano. You know, you know I'm going to play my guitar better or I'm going to sing better. And those were the some of the moments that just kind of happened by those guys given to, to one another. It, it, crazy, just crazy good stuff.
6: Crazy good stuff. That summer, it was really just a matter of the Team USA sorting itself out more than worrying about the competition. The tournament was really more of a formality than anything else. They would have been the automatic entrance in the 2008 Olympics if they had won the gold medal in 2004 or if they'd won the 2006 World Championships. But since they didn't, they had to qualify by winning what used to be called the Tournament of the Americas when the Dream Team did it in 92. Now it was going by the FIBA Americas Tournament but at least it wasn't an inconvenience logistically. Originally, it was supposed to be played in Venezuela, but Venezuela was delinquent in their payments to FIBA. So the USA just outbid everyone for the hosting rights, and they held it in Vegas. And the guys didn't even have to leave their hotel rooms after training camp.
2: That's right. A similar thing, Jay, had happened back in 92. That Now, as you mentioned, the Dream Team had to qualify because we had only won the bronze in, in uh, 88. You you actually had to explain what Olympic qualifying was to a, a lot of the guys. That's something not <laughs> the United States did. Anyway, that tournament was also supposed to be in South America. But uh, David Stern said, uh, no, no, we're not sending. Uh, Mike Michael's not packing his bags uh, right after the finals. And I think the NBA gave him five million dollars or something and moved it to Portland. And I'm not going to talk about it. But in retrospect, that was the greatest week uh, with the Dream Team, it was it was a little bit more intimate. You know, it wasn't the Olympic uh, restrictions; you could still hang out with the guys. I've said this before: the most supreme moment of covering those guys was the first time the Dream Team ran out together, and that happened at that Tournament of the Americas in Portland in '92. Naturally, it was uh, Magic and Larry came out first, and as soon as they came out, Cuba, the opponent, stopped practicing and started reach for their cameras and began taking uh, pictures.
6: So Jack team USA swept through the 2007 version of the tournament. They win by an average of 40 points per game. And really this was like the test run sort of like one of the earlier Apollo mission when they run through things like docking two vehicles in space, or they orbited the moon before they went for the actual moon landing. And in this case, they had successfully integrated Kobe with LeBron and team USA.
9: Kobe loved the game. He wanted to be perfect in the game. You listen to some of his interviews now, they're they're like a, the wisest coach talking about the game and and I, I I really believe that worked its way through our whole team, a greater love for the game. And so that finishes off their time together in
6: 2007. In episode eight, we'll look at 2008, the preparation and the final steps as they get ready for the Olympic games in Beijing and the redeemed team's arrival in China. Well, one was a little bit
5: later arriving when they were trying to go out, as Jason Kidd told us. We were leaving the hotel to go to a party and uh, we were waiting. And unfortunately he wasn't on time, so we left. (laughs) <laughs> and and LeBron was like, hey, you said, you know, we, we be on time? If you're not on time, we leave. So we, we left, and uh, we got a, a call that we had to turn around and go pick him up. Um, LeBron wasn't too happy about that. But
6: also the immense popularity of these players overseas and in China, and in particular, Kobe Bryant, as we heard from Jerry Colangelo.
3: The games leading up to the Olympics... You know, two o'clock in the morning and 10,000 people are on the streets lined up waiting, yelling, Kobe, Kobe, Kobe. I mean, he was, he had invested a lot of time over in uh, China and uh, Japan and had built quite a business for himself and following. And he was larger than life for for those people. That was um, Kind of a revelation for me, just how big he had become, and how big the market was over there for NBA players.
2: I'm Jack McCallum, and I'm Jay Adande. Thanks for listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. The Dream Team tapes, season two: Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, Jack McCallum, and J.A. Adonde. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis for Diversion Podcasts and Sean Titone for iHeartRadio. Our editorial director is John Tuttle, Supervising Producer Brian Murphy, Legal Producer Freddie Overstegen, Editing, Mixing, and Sound Design by Mark Francis. Verna Fields is our technical producer, and our Director of Marketing and Business Development is Jacob Bronstein.
6: Diversion Podcasts.
2: XCOM.com slash compatibility.